Welcome back to Mark's Madness. Yeah, we are back. We are doing it again. Doing it again. Doing it again with a cold. Uh, so if I sound <laughs> if I sound wrong, just just deal with it. I apologize. Um, I I I I am I'm suffering from a little bit of the sinuses. Um, yeah, we couldn't give you too much Nyquil, or that might have lowered our recording quality. Oh yeah, that's the thing that'll lower our recording quality is the Nyquil. <laughs> that's the thing. Yes, of course. I found it now. We'll blame Nyquil. Nudge. Um. <laughs> so. That being said, this is Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. Um, yeah. But before we read books, oftentimes we will talk about uh, current events or things that are bothering us that we want to yell about a little bit. Um, David, do you have any of those things on your agenda? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, you know, I mean, there's there's a whole world out there and a lot of things happen in that world. Um, Isn't there, so one of the Yeah. Uh, one of the big things uh, we touched on before, um, but I've been seeing a lot of kind of growing protests for um and so definitely want to throw our support for the protest i know uh black alliance for peace has been running some of it um but it's uh the u.s involvement in haiti and uh the u.s you know upholding uh, a dictator that that you know again 2004 under the bush administration there was a coup um to put the u.s back in power and control of haiti and right now the sitting president is beyond his presidency and um, will not, uh, I think the term I used before was abdicate the throne since he's acting dictatorial. Um, and of course, this is someone who has, you know, slaughtered protesting Haitians in the street. Uh, and this is all, you know, to support U.S. foreign policy and extraction from Haiti. Um, so definitely need to support hands off Haiti. Um, other stuff that's a little less actionable. I kind of mentioned, uh, Myanmar, Burma, whatever, uh, whatever you want to call it, because there's, there's some toss up in the name. Of course, you know, Burma is the colonial name and favors one of a hundred ethnic groups. Uh, but it is by far the, the largest. Um, but that is also the name, uh, that was there under, you know, several leaders from, you know, Ansong to, to, you know, you and, and all that. And, and they win. Uh, but uh, currently, they've changed it to Myanmar, supposedly to to be more inclusive to the other ethnic groups. Although, if you see the plight of particularly the Rohingya Muslims um, and and the genocide they've been subjected to, um, you know, you'll realize that that <laughs> changing the name to Myanmar really did nothing. Um, but of course, this all came around. You know, um, I touched on before. It was a country that was it was socialist. Um, it was socialist in kind of a weird way. It's always been kind of a military junta, but the the military junta was was run by socialists up until the eight 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 protest, uh, and then everything. Even though it was the same military junta, um, anyone that that wanted social programs for the people kind of came out of power, and they were just explicitly junta. And uh, so that whole protest, um, largely led by Aung San Suu Kyi, um, really kicked that into high gear. And of course, Aung San Suu Kyi got put up as uh, she couldn't be president but it was like prime minister or some other position but basically was was acting as president they just didn't want to give her the official title and that's when you know the west just poured in ngo basically like the old west for ngos it was terrible um and and of course throughout the entire process since the 8888 uh the whole 15 years of sadness fall of of socialism the eastern bloc and soviet union uh you know it hit essentially there was a 15 years of sadness at the same time in, in Burma, of course, because, um, you know, the liberalization of the economy. Um, 
So I said that the military junta cooing on San Suu Kyi is uh, somewhere between neutral and a positive, probably neutral. Uh, it looks like it's definitely that neutral. Uh, this military junta leader who, uh, of course, put down a communist uprising in, in 2008 um, and definitely was you know participatory in the, the Rohingya genocide. Um, looks like it's just carrying out the same policies. Um, I think there, there seems to be some sentiment that it's because of things turning downward uh, after the opening up to the West in 2016, uh, which in that case, I guess it would kind of be good. But what they do with that, you know, we don't really know. They seem to, to have some backing or at least some ties with uh, the Thai monarchy. Uh, so that's mm-hmm. not super encouraging. Not ideal. Uh, but it is broken out into an, a, a full-on um, uprising. And, of course, there are several groups, uh, including western back groups. So the one actionable thing I'll say is I believe it's the uh, – was it the Myanmar – Myanmar Mutual Aid, I think is the name of the group. But it seems like a, a mutual aid group. Uh, there is someone from Radio Free Asia on that board and uh, no Oop. evidence I've heard of that actually getting to the leader of the small ethnic military sex and, and Myanmar, Burma, whatever you want to call it is, is there are all kinds of little uh, military sex. When I talk about that 2008, um, you know, communist uprising, that was one of these smaller ethnic military sex um, from the North um, coming down and, 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 you know, trying to, to turn things. They, they called it federalized um, back in uh, Ansong's days, um, but kind of federalized things for the different ethnic groups, kind of along the lines of you know the old Yugoslavia. Is uh, it seems to be the desire, but um, you know a lot of these groups are going to vary from from left to to liberal, so it doesn't seem like anything that's really cohesive. So I can't say it's a very good thing necessarily for the uprising. Um, Basically, all I've seen is is the U.S. seems to be frustrated that they're not in control. They're, of course, grasping for control. The uprising groups are, are fairly liberal, so that would play into the, the U.S.'s hands. Um, but the U.S. is nonetheless blaming China for manipulating it because the U.S. is just trying to use it to stir up a war on China. So China has no inside hand on it. If anybody does, uh, they seem to be buddy-buddy with the Thai monarchy. Uh, and of course, the U.S. is always going to get its grubby hands in anywhere. Um, but that—that's about it on there. So just kind of, it's—it's it's where I thought it would be, which is unfortunately kind of a neutral move. Doesn't really improve anything, but it is much more active and 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 changing radically by the day in, in ways that I don't think anyone expected. So it is a major world event. We should bring that up. But there's not really anything actionable for like you know opposing imperialist lies unless it's accusing china of manipulating it there's not anything you know for us to do it's just something to, to kind of keep your eye on yeah and again it's it's good it is always good to keep your eye on these things as they evolve because again use your use your own analysis use your own instincts kind of try and see okay here's what i think that is and then plot it as you get more data because again the better you get at being able to spot these the only way you get better at spotting these things is by doing it over and over and over again unfortunately um yeah. that that's the only way that you can you can start to you know hear repeated patterns of of what gets covered and what doesn't get covered um and what what these kind of things look like, and then and then analyze the, the conditions on the ground that you have access to, and, and and then kind of come out with a with a thesis of some sort. Um, that yeah. is again, that is what you tend to do, David, and that's something that I think is a very valuable skill to have. Um, it still eludes me, but mostly because it eludes me because I just have you, and so I just rely on you to do it for me because I'm a cheater. <laughs> well, hopefully that that's a skill a filthy, everybody filthy is. Cheater. 
is hopefully it's a skill everybody is building and hopefully you know i mean you kind of have the same reaction where you hope for the best out of it uh but it doesn't seem to be a harbinger of of revolution even the uprising uh let alone the coup but considering that you know anytime on sung suchi has uh touched anything whether it's the 888 8888 revolution um or that was of course in July 8th, they, they measured as the eight month, I guess, there. Uh, 1988 is what it's named after. Um, but whether it was the 8888 revolution or whether it was her, you know, um, going into formal power in 2016 and then opening up to the, the West and the NGOs, it, every time something has happened in it that led by her, uh, it's gotten worse there. Um, but eventually the people are going to stand up and, and, and want something better. And for now, it seems like the, the continuum of military junta is still there and, and things are turning out very neutral, but I, I don't really know what's going to happen there. It's, it's, it's a situation yeah. that's, that's, that's unfolding interestingly, but not much we can do about it. Not, not a clear positive negative side, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and that, again, not everything is going to be clear cut, black and white, easy to analyze right off the bat. Like, there are there is gray in the world and we have to analyze that too um yeah there's gonna be situations we don't don't understand there's gonna be situations that are complex there's gonna be situations like uh what was happening in lebanon where it was you know seemingly very genuine and and good protest to get u.s involvement out that was almost immediately hijacked by the cia to be another one of their you know color rev uh protests but thankfully um suddenly uh his name eludes me the uh leader of hezbollah um Nasrallah was out there, you know, immediately identifying that at the time. Um, so, I mean, some things change change pretty quickly. And then sometimes there's things that, that seem invisible if you don't know the details or seem kind of tricky, but are very obvious from the beginning, like, you know, the U.S. getting involved in Syria. Um, and sometimes it's just straight up obvious, like the Hong Kong stuff. But whatever it is, it's just a matter of using your best resources to analyze it. Uh, listen to people who are good resources and good at analyzing as a point of input, you know, not that they're like, you know, dogmatically like, Oh, well, this person said this, so it's perfect. Um, immediately raise skepticism, of course, against anything that, that supports us foreign policy, because well, that's not by definition bad. I can't think of any time outside of world war two. That was good. And in world war two, that was a sudden change because Germany declared war on the United States. Um, yeah, that was so, more luck. That was, that was a lot more luck than anything else. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I can't think of, of any situation otherwise where, you know, it's like, oh yeah, no, the U S just happened to stumble on the right, right stance. So that's a pretty good rule of thumb. Uh, but the biggest thing, you know, I mean, build those skills, understand those situations, but also be humble about it. No, you're not going to understand everything and know your perspective should focus on, you know, what is the outcome of me speaking on this? What should I do as an American? And sometimes that's nothing. And sometimes that's, debunking lies and of course i say this i always want to be sure that i include that our our audience is not you know completely american and is hopefully <laughs> not especially white uh but when i get on on my high horse and I, I i lectern you know it's to the groups that i should i should be able to speak to you know i'm not sitting here like Correct. telling black people how to be revolutionary so if i'm saying like you know we as white people should do this that's because those are the people i should speak to when i say we as americans should support this or debunk this that's because you know we're in the imperial core that's what we should be doing but i'm not don't think i'm ah. forgetting about listeners that are, are not in inside the imperial core 
Speaking of the Imperial Corps, David, here's what I wanted to bring to the table this week for vent time. Uh, oh, for, boy. for Nathan, Nathan is frustrated and, and doesn't understand the internet some days. Um, have you seen the fun discourse going about on Twitter? Uh, and this will date this again, but the, the discourse <laughs> on Twitter about imperialism. Um, I think I've seen some of that. Um, let me sum it up for you. It. Okay. Let, let me, let me just do a quick, a quick here and then let you kind of go a little bit. Um, okay. The discourse as it stands is imperialism doesn't benefit American workers. Okay. That's ridiculous nonsense. That's. But- You'd but say what, you'd think what so, would function? You? But would function? Yeah, it, it's it's ridiculous nonsense. It should be people should be able to to, to laugh that statement. Just yeah, I mean, just laugh it off. Um, and and then if someone if it's brought up with that, then yeah, that's just being ridiculous. It's brought up with well, imperialism, you know, um, imperialism benefits the the U.S. workers. It's you know, what ends are they doing? Right? Are they are they explaining? Um, the problem with anti-imperialism from from the you know U.S. quote unquote left, um, and what you're going to have to overcome, or are they writing off anything that's not third worldism? But yeah, I, it, very obviously, imperialism helps us. Yeah, so so let's let's do the two the two tweets that jumped right out at me. One, there was a poll, uh, oh and the first poll was: if I rob a bank of a billion dollars and I give you a penny, are you benefiting from that robbery in any real sense? That's not a good analogy. Uh, I think that should be fairly obvious, and yet there's discourse, David. Discourse. Oh goodness. People okay. actually are talking like I'm I'm so confused as to why this is controversial, and yet here we are. And then the one that really jumped out at me, uh, eighty-five percent of US men and sixty-six point five percent of US women work more than forty hours a week. We're the only country in the Americas without national paid parental leave. Almost half of U.S. workers are employed in low-wage jobs that pay a median annual wage of $18,000. Imperialism will never benefit U.S. workers. Wait, hold on. Hold on. Imperialism will never save the U.S. workers from oppression. In fact, it locks that oppression in. It, it's, it's a contradiction. It works for you and against you. But the standard of living gained, the fact that we can abundantly go to, like, to the grocery store and pick any goddamn food we want, the fact that our, our – economy is in service jobs uh which is is bad for being independent and of course there is some manufacturing out there and core service jobs have haywire you know hours and deal with you know a lot of emotional labor and incredible um you know pressure and stress when you're there but the thing they are separated from from manufacturing jobs are you know chemicals and the dangers of the process of of manufacturing and and the dangers when a company is is cheap or trying to skirt regulations we get that some as a consumer when crap is dumped into the water uh but again you know i mean we we send our litter in our, our trash halfway around the world of course we benefit from imperialism that's ridiculous but also that same imperialism is going to lock us in into our own oppression as long as as it exists because it's going to make the powerful masters here more powerful it's just that their dominion isn't just here we're just the only ones close enough to get a contradiction of benefit and oppression and you can be oppressor 
and oppressed at the same time. I mean, I just oh said, "Oh my the- god, it's amazing! You can almost be one, you can be two things at once." Yeah, I mean, the it's, miracle it's, of miracles. You know, you could be you could be a man and still be you know working class or or poor or colonized person. You could be white and still be working class. You could be you know. Um, you could be a woman, but still be cisgender. You could be an oppressor and an oppressive, you know, an, an oppressive and an oppressed class at the same time. Um, and you benefit where you're from the oppressor class and you are oppressed in the oppressed class and you cannot release yourself from the oppression in the oppressed class you're in unless all forms of oppression are destroyed. That's where we talk about this all the time, right? You, yep. no one will be liberated in, anywhere in what is currently the United States um, so long as capitalism exists, but you're only going to get rid of capitalism with decolonial struggle with fights against uh, racism, with fights against uh, transphobia, with fights against, you know, I mean, all of these sexism, you know, all of these things. And of course that's all going to be rooted in stopping imperialism. Why would you ever deliver a message that, that doesn't, examine imperialism and that doesn't show why we fall for it it's like talking to someone who who lives away from an oppressed community like you live away from a black neighborhood where over policing is done um and you can talk about like how that person's more likely to have a friend that's a cop uh and not a friend that is hassled by cops every day but you still have to recognize that and and in order to address these things and discuss with them why would you harump that analysis why even even weirder why would you put forward an analysis that could possibly be construed in a way that says u.s imperialism is okay because the the problem i'm having with that is that what is your end game from saying that imperialism doesn't benefit u.s workers that we shouldn't fight against it that we shouldn't that we shouldn't oppose it that we should we shouldn't center it in our struggle like what are you attempting to gain from that uh that that does unless you're trying to do I could see it as a foolish talking point to try to say we don't benefit benefit from this anyway, so don't support it. But then that's not correct, and and then well, exactly. you're not going to build trust. You know, you you don't. It's not that you don't benefit from it. It's that all of the ways that you are oppressed, which are very real, and as listed out uh, in the person making making this argument that you listed out, you know, from the poor hours to the the poor wages to the poor health care. All of those things come with that oppression, and that oppression cannot be released unless imperialism is stopped. And so it's much more important to stop imperialism than to support it, even when you get some minimal benefit. And that's, of course, completely separating uh, the you know moral idea of like, you know, oh, yeah, we're going to, you know, heat death the planet and and ruin the lives of millions Oops. of colonized people all over the global south but hey you know get a little more comfortable like that's an incredibly disgusting moral qualm but even setting that aside you can't stop where you are oppressed without stopping that that doesn't mean you don't benefit and and beyond that I, i'm having a couple there are a couple other things and i apologize if i'm going to spend an inordinate amount of time on this but i've seen it too much on twitter and it's been too much yeah. of a, a dumb topic that i don't want to at least have a d- discussion about I'm it on twitter all um, the time and i saw like two tweets about this i didn't realize this was such a big deal i also didn't see the original and it, may, 
it may just be it may just be in my little sphere it may just be in the little sphere mm. that I see but I saw it too much and from from too many different people that I I don't think that there's a conversation about it and again it's just important to to very clearly delineate where this goes what is the goal so what let's say let me take the most the most generous position here and say that yeah. your only your only goal of of making that point is to say that imperialism only benefits it doesn't benefit U.S. workers. It only benefits the U.S. What the the bourgeoisie, the the ruling class. Yeah, I can see what that trying po- to be the point to to make, and and they're the That's, primary I think benefactors. The only one you can make. I will. I will say this as well too. So like, and this sounds weird because people like assume progressively things get better over time, but of course we talked about you know <laughs> that's not linear, and that's usually from struggle, right? And places where struggle has continued successfully or like lgbt plus rights things have gotten better but they're still a long way from where they should be um for sure but but something that's actually gotten worse and this is where people talk about you know real median income um or u.s poverty rates or houselessness rates and of course all this comes extremely surface level uh, as COVID, you know, really exposes stuff and what would have already been a, a market crash because we were looking down the pipe at subprime mortgages again. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> um, but, you know, these benefits more and more over time are being trapped by the ruling class before you get there, greater and greater shares. So you're seeing less and less of the benefit of imperialism over time as a working class. And of course the harms of being in the oppressed class against the bourgeoisie are, you know, not are are far worse than the benefits. And, and you're not going to get rid of that as long as you possess those benefits, as long as you allow imperialism to continue and to fatten the calf that is the, the bourgeoisie, you know, you have to slaughter that calf. Um, Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, is over time that's still getting trapped. And so people are seeing it less and less, you know, you're seeing things with the gig economy, you're seeing things, um, with inflation, you know, going way up because of course it does. There's consumer goods everywhere getting cheaper and cheaper, um, as, as extraction just fires on. Uh, but as the inflation goes up, your wages aren't going up, you know? So you're going to see those things. I mean, again, covid right we couldn't take measures to stop covid and who does that come down on well that comes down mostly on working class people especially people in the service industry especially people of color and of course people in prisons um you know i mean so it it exposes all of these contradictions but that doesn't mean it isn't a contradiction it's not all a one-way street no and it's it's just I'm trying to figure out again. I my it feels goal, like this is very Gotha program level analysis where it's it's important, but it's also taking someone who tried to listen, who thinks they got it, and got real excited and going, "No dumbass!" Like this feels yeah, very much yeah like, like that. It feels it feels very much, and again because I'm always my 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 fault is that I I constantly I always try and engage in good faith. Like I'm always assuming the other person across from me is having some sort of 
is is not a bad actor in some way, shape, or form. And and yeah. this now one the one the the bad one the one I read you about how you know wages are bad, therefore we can't be benefiting from imperialism is from someone in the CPUSA. Now I'm going to take my cheap shot there and go, ah, all right, well, eh, <laughs> cops are going to cop, you know, there you go. Um, and that's that's wrong of me. That's very wrong of me. But yeah. that's that's what I but see. I get, Again, I get where you're coming from. It's CPUSA. But- what do we know about them? They tend to mm, cops. Composition. There you go. But it, it also seems to be like their their argument seems to be around this idea that third worldism somehow absolves us of having to do something. That by saying we're benefiting from imperialism and that imperialism and that it must that the 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 proletariat well, that's not of even the third worldism is third worldism is is the revolution can't happen in the first world on its own the third world will rise up and cause the first world to collapse and again if you do subscribe to that that doesn't mean you can't do anything you know it's one of the things we talked about right where there's there's different ideas of parties something that's happened consistent two things that have happened consistently in parties and and any organizing spaces in the united states is racism has reared its ugly head against colonized people who are the people that are going to be the most militant and in the most need of liberation and misogyny has, has reared its ugly head. Um, you know, I don't know how many times parties will have fallouts from, you know, sexual assault scandals and, and handling it poorly. Um, you know, I mean, these are things that everybody's, you know, heard the term activists and, and, and the horrors of that. Um, so, you know, I mean, these are, these are very, very real things that, that we have to deal with Talked about, you know, I mean, misogyny and, and racism against colonized people. Now you and me, we're white dudes, right? And some portion of our listener base, the ones that I should be pontificating to, if anyone, maybe we should be pontificating to no one, but maybe, but if anyone, it should be the, 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 you know, uh, other white men that are, are listening. Um, you know, that doesn't mean we shouldn't organize. That doesn't mean we should get the hell out. And so there's been a myriad of different ideas. You know, do people just go back to the same party that's for everyone because it's all one cause and we just have to recognize and directly address all of these different intricacies and class struggles um, and decolonial struggles within? Do you have a party like, say, the Black Panthers where the party is all black, but then they have, you know, white and Puerto Rican and, and other groups that they organize and work with in a rainbow coalition, right? Or um, some, you know, newer Black Panther movements have put it under kind of an umbrella of the United Panther movement with white Panthers and brown Panthers. Um, do you do something that or, you know, are there parties? And we had a little trouble with the, the one party that this came up with coming, turning out to be pretty reactionary. But, you know, there could be a party of like all colonized people, maybe all black people or, or, you know, all indigenous people or just all colonized people in general, you know, only organizing with colonized people and not with white people and, and leaving white people to do their own organizing. That doesn't mean we shouldn't organize in that term, you know, in our white communities or organize supportedly of them <laughs> if they're going to be a vanguard. There's different designs to it, but there's always a place for us. So if third worldism, does come out to be true that doesn't mean we should wash our hands of it <laughs> that <laughs> means we should be doing everything in the imperial core to combat to combat imperialism to allow those third world revolutions to happen yes and it, it, that would be if you're taking the most extreme yeah that's extreme third worldism view of third worldism <laughs> this is not it, again it is back to it, it's just back to this thing and it's it, to me what it what it really boils down to is this feels 
this whole argument feels class reductionist that there is something to the effect of there is something that the Amer that working class is working class no matter where you are and being a working class person or yeah. a, a lumpen in America is just as valid as being a lumpen class or a worker in the global south and there is no yeah. difference and there's no delineation and I understand wanting to be proud of and 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 work to build a movement within the imperial core and within America with your own people um, right. I also understand trying to get the people around you who may benefit from this system to not support it yes. by trying to say they don't yes. benefit. Exactly. But that's not the right analysis. But that's not how you get there. Is the pro- that's exactly it. that's not how you have you don't have to get there by denying there is essential privilege to the position we are in. Again, you on the br- there are people that oh well if you're on the brink of nothing or you're going to lose everything or you've got nothing or you're sleeping on the streets you, how do you how can you possibly claim that these people have privilege because yeah, look what uh, sleeping on the streets here is versus what sleeping on the streets in the global south is and what the risks to your life I mean there's just there is a lot of nuance to this and it does not boil down to a black or white thing but it absolutely boils down to there are benefits from imperialism that we benefit from here in the imperial core. Period. Well, There's it, no way I'm, to deny it. I'm really glad you brought up class reductionism because that makes me think that that fits kind of the point here, right? So, you know, one of the things that, that always comes up in the stupid discourse, I, I think it's just because some YouTube fans seem to attract ex-alt writers or whatever. But... <laughs> Something that comes up is like, you know, for some reason, just unprompted, not only people recently Nazis and we should just be okay with that, but then they just unpromptly proudly bring it up. Like you should be more open minded to Nazis to bring them in the movement or some bullshit like that. And for some reason, the onus isn't on them to completely eradicate that part of their lives and to never expect even forgiveness, let alone full acceptance and to still organize against the very thing that that trapped them in and the horrors that that causes somehow the onus is on other people to accept it right and that that reproduces itself all the time somehow you know the onus uh, when you get down to class reductionism isn't on white people to be less racist because these are our comrades and we should be fighting for them not dehumanizing them or not creating a whole nother caste or class system that put them below us but we should be completely collapsing this and fighting racism head on right why is the onus on you know people of color to accept some racism from white people in the organization because of class and not the white people to stop alienating their you know, everyone that they're in this class struggle with, right? Why, why are the people that are the most deeply hurt, the ones that it's okay with alienating. And now you get to the same idea here, right? Where even if you take that, that third world approach into class reductionism thing, why is it up to us to, why is it up to, to people in the third world who are struggling directly and more deeply in this class struggle uh, through imperialism to accept that, oh no, we're not really the beneficiaries. They should be more open-minded to us. Why is it not up to us to fight that imperialist struggle and to struggle against that the same way we should struggle against racism and struggle against misogyny and struggle against you know fascism? Uh, why is it not up to us to, to first and foremost put in that struggle when you get to the class reductionism the problem is not that not realizing that we're all in the same class struggle together that's important to realize and to interconnect it's 
putting the onus on understanding the unification of the class struggle on the people that are hurt in other ways and other class and colonial systems without focusing on collapsing those class and colonial systems for the benefit of the people who already benefit from those systems. And that is a load of crap. A fucking men. And that's, thank you for indulging me for as long as we have, we have officially hit about the halfway point of the episode. And so I feel like we owe the people some reading. Um, Hey, we've gotten through 15 pages the last couple weeks, guys. We deserved one fuck off episode where we got to talk about (laughs) stuff we needed to talk about. All right. But thank you again, David, for uh, for for kind of engaging around that. Again, I've seen enough Absolutely. of it on Twitter that I I think it's it. There's obviously something boiling under the surface there that someone w- might might have thought about. And so, thank you for for yeah. going down that road with me. And again, you know, I'm sure it's well intentioned, but you know, it's it's well intentioned in the same. Again, I'm really glad you brought up class reductionism. The same way as class reductionism, right? Where it starts off well intentioned because maybe you want the people around you to realize they're fighting this system. But you're giving them wrong analysis, and it's conveniently wrong analysis that doesn't make you uncomfortable when you need to be uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That being said, we are Mark's Madness. Therefore, we do read book. Uh, That is the the tautology that is this show. So we're going to read some book. Uh, The book we are reading is Black Reconstruction in America. The chapter we're reading is Mississippi and Louisiana. And the page we're reading from is page 439, third paragraph down. The 40th Congress adjourned with the question of Mississippi unsettled. Finally, in April 1869, a bill was agreed upon which directed that Mississippi was to be admitted when she adopted the 15th Amendment and that the president was authorized to submit the Constitution as a whole and also the same Constitution with its provisions disenfranchising the bulk of Confederates left out. Gillum was removed and General Ames, who had been acting civil governor, was made provisional governor of the state. He reported that certain black certain men backed by public opinion were committing murders and outrages under dis, under direction of Congress. Ames removed a large number of officers and made appointments of state and local officers, including several Negroes. Among other things, he declared freedmen to be competent jurors. He said of his work at this time, David, take over because I can't read apparently. <laughs> uh, well, before we get into this quote, uh, one thing I want to make sure I've got this paragraph down. I think it's saying that I, I mean, obviously, the clear thing is, you know, Mississippi accepts the 15th Amendment to back of the union, which these states had to come back in. And then we've talked about for a few chapters now how they kind of got got off easy coming back in and they're meaning to j- disenfranchise, uh, you know, the black folks that had just been freed from slavery. Um, so I think this is saying that as long as they, they you know, enfranchise them and follow the the amendment and everything they're back in, but everyone who should rightly be disenfranchised from fighting for the Confederacy is also back in. Uh, But fortunately, the other factor in that compromise is that there's this general Ames uh, must've been from the union army just appointed by the president uh, who's running things in the interim until that election is, is, or until, you know, elections are through and, and they get other people in and that's ensuring, you know, black people have rights. So I guess we'll uh, dive into the quote and find out. Dive. Um, dive. I found when I was a military governor of Mississippi that a black code existed there, that Negroes had no rights and that they were not permitted to exercise the rights of citizenship. I'd given them the protection they were entitled to under the laws. I believed I could render them great service. I felt that I had a mission to perform in their interest and I hesitatingly 
oh, consented to represent them and unite my fortune with theirs. Ames thus made a counterbid for Negro support, reversing the indifferent stand of the Mississippi Republicans. In July, President Grant issued a proclamation ordering the Constitution to be submitted for ratification November 30th. The Radical Republicans held their convention July 2nd and attempted a platform of several resolutions. These resolutions declared, in favor of an impartial and economic administration of the government, the unrestricted right of free speech to all men at all times and all places, unrestrained freedom of the ballot, a system of free schools, a reform of the iniquitous, 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 yeah, okay, iniquitous and unequal system of taxation and assessments which discriminated against labor, declared that all men without regard to race, color, or previous condition of servitude were equal before the law, recommended removal of political disabilities as soon as the spirit of toleration now dawning upon the state should be so firmly established as to justify Congress in taking such action, declared in favor of universal amnesty and universal suffrage and encouragement of immigration. I assume that means immigration from the, the north down to the south. Yeah, uh, the, the carpetbagging variety. Yes, yeah, I am. Um, Ex-Governor Brown of the Conservatives were in favor of ratifying the Constitution without the prescriptive provisions and of accepting the 15th Amendment. They secured Judge Dent, a brother-in-law of Grant, as the candidate, thinking in a way to secure the goodwill of Grant. But Grant repudiated the party that nominated Dent. The Dent party nominated Thomas Sinclair, a colored man, for Secretary of State. The Republicans nominated General J.L. Alcorn for governor and the Reverend James Lynch, a mulatto preacher, for Secretary of State. The whole election showed the increasing political importance of the Negroes, and this undoubtedly explains the increased activity of the Ku Klux Klan in 1869. This is the first go-round of of those bastards. Um, Oh, goody! Goody! Yeah, Uh, there were some riots in three or four counties. The Constitution was ratified almost unanimously, but the prescriptive sections disenfranchising members of the Secession Convention and other active Confederates were defeated. The provision forbidding the loan of state funds was ratified. The first Reconstruction Legislature met at Jackson January 11, 1870. The legislature elected in 1868 had never been convened because of the defeat of the Constitution. Negro membership in the new legislature was larger than the convention. There were, there were 40 colored members, uh, some of whom had been slaves before the war, but among them were very intelligent men. That is, for some reason, in air quotes. Um, particularly, there was considerable representation of ministers. In the Senate, there were five colored members. Many of the wealthiest counties were represented by ex-slaves. Yet, as Lynch shows, Negroes never controlled Mississippi. No colored man in the state ever occupied a judicial position above that of Justice of the Peace, and very few aspired to that position. Of seven state officers, only one, that of Secretary of State, was filled by a colored man until 1873, when colored men were elected to three of the seven offices. Lieutenant Governor, Secretary of State, and State Superintendent of Education. Of the two United States Senators and the seven members of the lower house of Congress, not more than one colored man occupied a seat in each house at the same time. Of 35 members of the state Senate, of the 115 members of the House, which composed the total membership of the state legislature prior to 1874, there were never more than about seven colored men in the Senate for 40 in the, and 40 in the lower house. 
of 97 members that composed the Constitutional Convention of 1868, but 17 were colored men. The composition of the lower house of the state legislature that was elected in 1871 was as followed. We get to read off some numbers, but it's technically not in a chart and graph. Numbers! <laughs> Total membership, 115. Republicans, 66. Democrats, 49. Colored members, 38. White members, 77. White majority, 39. Of 66 Republicans, 38 were colored men and 28 white. There was a slight increase in the colored membership as a result of the election of 1873, but the colored men never at any time had control of the state government nor of any branch or department thereof, nor even that of any county or municipality. Out of 72 counties in the state at the same time, or at that time, electing on an average 28 officers to a county, it is safe to assert that not over 5 out of 100 of such officers were colored men. The state, district, county, and municipal governments were not only in control of white men, but white men who were in the manner born, or who were known as old citizens of the state, those who had lived in the state many years before the War of the Rebellion. <laughs> the War of the Rebellion. I guess the, that's, that's also... The, is that is akin that the, to the War of Northern Aggression? I was about to say, no, Rebellion makes it sound like they fucked up. Okay, okay. Rebellion there makes was, it sound like they did something wrong. Okay. Uh, there was, therefore, never a time when that class of white men known as carpetbangers carpet had absolute control of the state government, or that any district, county, or municipality, or any branch of that department thereof. There was never, therefore, any ground for the alleged apprehension of Negro domination as a result of free, fair, and honest election in any one of the southern or reconstructed states. At the same time, the Negroes were laborers, and if at any time the white and black labor vote united, property and privilege in Mississippi were bound to suffer. And on the other hand, if property controlled black labor, white labor would be as helpless as before the war. These two fears explain Reconstruction in Mississippi. The legislature ratified the 14th and 15th Amendments and elected three United States senators, one for the full term and two for unexpired terms. For the full term, Alcorn was chosen, and one for and for one unexpired term, General Ames, while Haram R. Revels, a colored minister, was chosen to fill the unexpired term of Jefferson Davis. Eat shit, two-time Daytona 500 champion Jeff Davis. Two-time Daytona 500 champion Jefferson Davis. <laughs> Revels, uh, got it. That's going to be, I, I'm. Very specific, because it's going to sound like I'm saying rebels. Rebels with a V as in a proper name, as in Haram R. Rebels. Oh, uh, God. Came, yeah, the, the one the one that, that took two-time Daytona 500 champion Jeff Davis's seat. Um, <laughs> came oh, wow. from North Carolina and was educated in Indiana. He was a minister in Baltimore at the opening of the war, and there helped to organize two colored regiments. He came south with the Freedmen's Bureau and was surprised when selected to represent the Senate state in the Senate. He was a man of intelligence, but the Republican United States debated three days on his credentials. Finally, after one of Sumner's ablest speeches, he was admitted. Charles Sumner just sticking uh, up for him. Pretty good stuff. I was very I, – I, so I was you, following along, but I heard ablest, and I'm like, whoa, Charles Sumner defending the rights of – oh, no. No, he's just using the ableist as like good. Never mind. All right. Yeah, Charles, yeah not not, Charles not ableist is in bigotry against disabled people. Ableist I was about is to say, like Charles Sumner, the most you woke, most, must, you woke boy. I love it. 
Yeah, no. Uh, well, I know if it was an ableist speech, it would be unwoke. It'd be bad. Touche! Um, even after that, Philadelphia refused to y- the use of her Academy of Music for a meeting at which he was to speak. Ames now turned over the government to Alcorn and went to the Senate. Alcorn took a firm and advanced stand. In his inaugural speech, he spoke of his attachment for Mississippi. He declared that it was the duty of the government to protect all its citizens, white and black, before the ballot box, the jury box, and public office, and to give industrial opportunity to the honest and competent without discrimination of color. Good, good. Rare for Mississippi at the time, as we're reading, but good to hear it. He said, in the face of memories that might have separated them from me, as the wronged from the wronger, they offered me their confidence, offered me their guardianship, the guardianship of their new and precious hopes with a trustfulness whose very mention stirs my nerves with emotion. In response to that touching radiance, the most profound anxiety with which I enter my office as governor of this state is that of making the colored man the equal before the law of every other man. The equal not in dead letter, but in living fact. Okay, this dude's living up to it so far. Yeah, because that's very important, right? And that, 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 He's he's not the total idealist that usually runs in the United States there. Not just said to be equal, but actually equal. Now, yep. I'm sure he's not a full-on materialist, but nonetheless. He had a word to say for the poor whites. Thousands of our worthy white friends have ever remained to a great extent strangers to the helping hand of the state. Unfortunately, Alcorn, instead of staying and finishing this job, thus well outlined, had the universal Southern ambition of the day to go to the United States Senate. Oh, damn it. He was therefore in office only a little over a year when he went to Washington to succeed Revels. The legislature, meanwhile, meantime, went to work to set up the government. The part which the Negro played in this reconstruction was as extraordinary as it was unexpected. There were far fewer Negroes of education and ability in Mississippi than in South Carolina or Louisiana, but there were a few, perhaps a bare half dozen, who gave the universal uh, an epoch-making service. One of these leaders, and perhaps the best, tells of the task before them. Quote, The new administration had an important and difficult task before it. A state government had to be organized from top to bottom. A new judiciary had to be inaugurated, consisting of three justices of the state Supreme Court, 15 judges of the circuit court, and 20 chancery court judges who had all to be appointed by the governor. With the consent of the Senate, and in addition, a new public school system had to be established. There was not a public school building anywhere in the state except in a few of the larger towns, and they, with possibly a few exceptions, were greatly in need of repairs. To erect the necessary schoolhouses and to reconstruct and repair those already in existence so as to afford educational facilities for both races was by no means an easy task. It necessitated a very large outlay of cash in the beginning, which resulted in a material increase in the rate of taxation for the time being. But the Constitution called for the establishment of the system, and of course the work had to be done. It was not only done, but it was done creditably and as economically as possible considering the conditions at the time. That system, though slightly changed, still stands. A charitable monument to the first Republican state administration that was organized in the state of Mississippi under the Reconstruction Acts of Congress. It was also necessary to reorganize, reconstruct, and in many stances rebuild some of the penal and charitable institutions of the state. 
a new code of laws had to be adopted to take the place of the old code and thus wipe out the black laws that had been passed by what was known as the Johnson legislature. And in addition, bring about the other changes so as to make the laws and statutes of the state conform with the new order of things. This was no easy task in view of the fact that a heavy increase in the rate of taxation was thus made necessary for the time being at least. That this important task was splendidly, credibly, and economically done, no fair-minded person who is familiar with the facts will question or dispute. Of course not. Not not anyone that actually knows what's going on would dispute that. But you know there's just piles of racist fervor of like, oh, we get robbed by taxes just being built up as this is going on. All of the apologia. Burp, 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 taxes, theft. When the Alcorn administration took the charge <laughs> of the state, forever and ever, amen. <laughs> forever and ever, amen. Taxes, theft. Uh, when the Alcorn administration took charge of the state government, the war had just come to a close. Everything was in a prostrate condition. There had been a great de- depreciation in value of real and personal property. The credit of the state was not very good. The rate of interest for borrowed money was high. To materially increase the bonded debt of the Senate of the state was deemed not wise, yet some had to be raised in that way. To raise the balance, a higher rate of taxation had to be imposed, since the assessed valuation of the taxable property was so low. The legislature of 1871 was in session about six months and passed 325 acts and resolutions. The increase of that's citizenship. A that's a that's a few. The increase of citizenship and the revolution through which the state had passed called without doubt for more laws. The expenses of the legislative department were large and the session long, yet it can hardly be said, considering the work done and the depreciated value of the currency, that it was an extravagant assembly. The legislature of 1872 had John R. Lynch, a Negro, as Speaker of the House. There were 28 white and 38 colored Republicans and 49 Democrats. And it took a trip to Senator Alcorn. It took a trip of Senator Alcorn from Washington to induce enough white Republicans to support Lynch in order to elect him. At the close of the session, however, Lynch was presented with a gold watch and chain. On motion of a prominent white Democrat, a resolution was adopted thanking him for his dignity and partiality and courtesy as a presiding officer. The clarion declared his bearing in office has been so proper and his ruling in such marked contrast to the former conduct of the ignoble whites of his party who have been aspiring to be leaders of blacks that this conservative that the conservatives cheerfully joined in the testimonial civil rights. I'm not sure to take that as like just amazing how good Lynch is. Or that Lynch was moderate because he had to be. <laughs> like, I don't know which one that means. I just, Let's see. I just know the quote. Let's see if Du Bois elucidates. Civil rights measures constituted a considerable part of the legislation between 1868 and 1876. In his inaugural address, Governor Alcorn asserted positively that so long as he was governor, all citizens without respect to color or nativity nativity yeah yeah, yeah, yeah nativity. i'm going with nativity yeah no the nativity. same the same word as the christmas thing but it just that's means, what i was worried about i was like it's, it's not the christmas thing it's just it's Should- just that the possession of where you're native to which again i have not liked the use of native in this book even it's entirely in quotes um of them saying native white people but we know what they mean like people of the state i got it should be sh- uh uh so 
asserted positively that so long as he was governor, all citizens without respect to color or nativity should be shielded by law as with a panoply. In 1870, all laws relative to free Negroes, slaves, and mulattoes, as found in the Code of 1857, and the laws constituting the so-called Black Codes, were declared to be forever repealed. It was declared to be true intent and meaning of the legislature to remove from the records of the state all laws which in any manner recognized any natural difference or distinction between citizens and inhabitants of the state. The legislature elected in 1873 had 37 members of the Senate, of whom nine were colored, nine were white carpetbaggers. In the House, over 115 members, of whom 55 were colored and 60 white, including the 15 carpetbaggers. This election went further than any toward a fusion of planters and Negroes, and this was only prevented by the rivalry of Alcorn and Ames. When Alcorn came to the Senate, he was succeeded by a carpetbagger, R.C. Powers. Finally, in 1873, Ames, who had been in the United States Senate, was elected governor over Alcorn, who was again a candidate. With Ames, three colored men went to office, A.K. Davis, Lieutenant Governor, James Hill, Secretary of State, and T.W. Cardozo, Superintendent of Education. B.K. Bruce, who had been selected for lieutenant governor, but refused and afterward went to the Senate. I wasn't aware that was an option. You just be yeah, like, hey, you want to be like, lieutenant hey, governor? Rug, rug job, guys. Rug job. I, I wrote I wrote myself in for the wrong election. <laughs> I'm just going to go to this one. Oh, I won. Shit. It's cool. We got this. This greatly disappointed Alcorn, who wished to remain in the Senate and who therefore refused to escort Bruce to take the oath. Bruce, who had been county assessor, parish, and tax collector in Bolivar County, one of the wealthiest counties in the state. Simone Bolivar County? Simone the the Liberator County, baby. (laughs) I kind of wonder why there's a Bolivar County somewhere in Mississippi, but, you know. That is pretty interesting. Now, he he did have those travels where he came to the United States and wound up in Haiti and so, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess I could see it, but he wasn't that important when he was this far north. Nah, he's always important. He, number one in our heart. Number five in our programs. Number one in our hearts. Simone Bolivar. Throw it up. Uh, Davis, the new lieutenant governor, had made a credible record as a member of the legislature, but he was not a strong man. Hill was young, active, and aggressive, and above the average colored man in intelligence. Cardozo was capable, but not well known. Uh, That that fun little paragraph is where we're going to end it for this week, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, we're going to start, like, bloating on about qualifications and and the average person lacking them. I'm not. I'm not here for it. We got a lot of pages. We, We blathered on for half an hour, and we still... Got what is that? Six pages? Yeah, we did. I'll good. take it. I'll for all that blathering. I'll take it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we got to see two-time like, Daytona 500 champion Jeff Davis. Jeff getting Davis dumped made on. an appearance. Made came back and made an appearance. Um, all right. Well, folks, if you uh, have heard something in these last fifty so minutes that has uh, caused you to think mm, they screwed that up. We still do corrections, and we have taken a couple uh, recently that we need to incorporate into some episodes. Um, oh, but if you, I didn't realize, or we would have hit that right at the beginning. I'm sorry. 
I'm aware. No, 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 no. We're going to incorporate them in a different way. Okay. But okay. if you have a correction, if you have something that you think we we may have goofed on and need to incorporate and and you know get better about please reach out to us the easiest way to get at us is uh in discord the discord server is the marks madness pod discord and it is linked in our twitter bio that is where nathan spends all of his time the notifications are on you can't miss him there um Mm -hmm. but if you wanted to reach out through email you can do so it's at it's marksmadnesspod at gmail.com, marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. Um, and if you wanted to get us on Twitter, you can. Um, DMs are open, but they are that is the easiest way to get missed. So, um, again, Twitter is the last resort. Discord is your first option, and email is your second, op- second option. I did that in, like, weird reverse t- Quentin Tarantino order, <laughs> so I apologize, but y- you all know what I meant. We're good with it. We got it. We know what you meant. <laughs> David, that pause was too long, and I don't appreciate it. <laughs> that was a long pause before you affirmed the fact that I was just, able to just, correctly <laughs> tell people how to reach us. Just Damn making it. sure you're on your toes. Oh, yeah. Keep me on my toes. Uh, that being said, di- uh, disclaimer was last week, so David, you would get a week off. I'm, I see you, though. I see what you're up to trying to you know connive your way out of a disclaimer but that being said this has been mark's madness pod uh we read books my name is nathan my name's david and we will talk to you all next week Bye. bye